0: Now take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Malachi today, chapter 3, reading in verses 6 through 12. Malachi chapter 3, 6 through 12. Find that on page 802 of our CART Bibles. Before we read this word together, please join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray again. O oh, gracious Father, give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts to believe through your word all that you have for us. Help us to hear not only the word of this prophecy, but a word of your grace and truth, the abundance that you have for your people in Christ. Help us to trust in him. And lead us to yourself through these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. we well, here now Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, you, uh, you may be aware, if you follow such things, that uh, in the ever-expanding world of endurance sports, uh, there seems to be an event for any conceivable interest. And so the traditionalists have their marathons, they have their 10Ks. Uh, the extremists, they have their ultra-marathons, their double Ironmans. Uh, The weekend warriors, and some of you have recently participated, the weekend warriors have their Spartan runs and their Tough mutters. And then for those quirky runners in Colorado, there are the donkey races. Actually, uh, they'd prefer that you call them burrows, burrow races. Uh, And they're events that are meant to harken back to the days of mountain men and mining towns scattered throughout the Rockies, uh, they're races, like others, that vary in lengths from just a couple miles up to a couple dozen miles, some very long races. But all of these burrow races share a common element. As you run, you lead by a rope and trot alongside a real live Mexican burro. Uh, the runners may not at any time ride on the donkeys, but the donkeys must carry a regulation saddle pack. That saddle pack must weigh at least 33 pounds, and it must contain the traditional prospector's pick, shovel, and mining pan. Now, just like every other race, the goal is to get across the finish line as quickly as possible. But as you might imagine, burrow racing presents its own set of challenges. There's the normal things, expanded though. The, the ever-present need for water, perhaps calories on those longer runs. But not only for the runner, also for the burrow, and then there is the fact that, as one writer put it, the donkey is not an animal known for its cooperative nature. And Perhaps for those, uh, that very reason, the, uh, the official rules established by the Western Pack Burrow Association state that the runner may push, pull, drag, or carry the burrow. <laughs> well, there, uh, there are some things you understand that are hard to turn around once they get going. A stubborn donkey, a cruising battleship, a failing marriage, or a sinner intent on their iniquity. In the verses that we have just read, the Lord is speaking to his people who are running full stride in their sin. The message that he has for them is clear. It is unambiguous. That message is turn around. Return to me. No longer walk in the stubbornness of your own direction, but return and find shelter in God's unchanging faithfulness. Our text divides into two halves. We're going to follow that that division. First, the Lord calls his people to repentance. And then when his people repent, the Lord gives a promise of abundance. Our two points today, a call to repentance And a promise of abundance. The call appears in verse 7. Verse 7. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. That Hebrew word for return is shuv, Uh, It means an about face. It means to leave off going in one direction and instead to go in the other direction. And here is an amazing thing, because the Lord says that as his people turn, he also will turn. That as they return to him, he will return to them. At the moment, they are both facing in opposite directions. They are both moving further away from one another rather than closer. You have seen those old campy western films. Right, You know the scene where the good guy and the bad guy are standing in the town square and they're about to have a duel, but first they start with their backs to one another and they each take 15 paces in opposite directions. Those 15 paces are what God is dealing with here. People moving away from one another rather than toward one another. It's an indication of a broken relationship. In Micah, the Lord tells his people that what he wants from them is to walk humbly with their God. That is, to move in the same direction. And that great benediction in Numbers chapter 6, the priest of Israel would raise their hands and pray for God's people. That God would lift up his face to them. That he would turn his countenance to them. But husbands and wives have had nights. Like Malachi is envisioning, there is a disagreement. The disagreement is bad, but it's not quite bad enough to go sleep on the couch. So what do you do? You roll over in a huff. You give the silent treatment to your partner, and you lay there in this, this silent sign of your disunity. But the Lord is saying to his bride, we need to be reconciled, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord. It is a call to repentance. And that call comes in a context. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is one of the doctrines we love to celebrate. It is the unchangeableness of God, it's what theologians call the immutability. Of God, It's the doctrine that not only does God not change, but in fact, God cannot change. In his being, in his wisdom, his power, his justice, his, his holiness, his goodness and truth, the Lord is not capable either of increase or decrease, no improvement, no decline. God cannot become more perfect than he already is. He will never be less perfect than he always has been. Christ the Lord, we profess, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God's people sing. Thou changest not. thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. But here we begin, begin to be tied up with the text. On the one hand, God says, when you turn, I'll turn. When you change your approach, I'll change my approach. On the other hand, God says, I do not change. There's no shifting. There's no shadow variation due to change. And so which is it? Does God turn or is he turnless? Does he change or is he constant? Well, it's the combination, I think, of these two verses, these two ideas that explains and, and exposes the false ideas that Judah currently has about their Lord in Malachi. You recall that people are... Back in the land that God had promised to their forefathers, but things are hard. Too hard. This is pre-Nehemiah time. The people in Jerusalem, but uh, they're in Jerusalem, but the walls have not been reconstructed yet. They are living without protection. There are enemies around them who might want to come and take a slice out of Israel, and they are living exposed, and things are difficult for them. They're struggling to make ends meet in the land of promise. A land of milk and honey, in abundance it was supposed to be. And when the spies went in, they found clusters of grapes so large they had to carry them on a pole between two men. Yet here we find that the second half of this passage suggests that people are dealing with drought, with pests, with blight and diseases in their crops. Their children are hungry. Their bellies are empty. The people are suffering. And in their suffering, the people thought that it probably had something to do with the fact that God has changed his mind about his people. Maybe the Lord is against Israel rather than for Israel. Remember the opening words of Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, how have you loved us? So it is here. Return to me, says the Lord, but you say, how shall we return? In other words, they're saying, we're already doing everything we can. We're not aware of any failure on our part. You ask us to return, but how shall we return? The New Living Translation gets it right. How can we return when we've never gone away? The people are suffering. And in their suffering, they assume that it must mean that God is against them. They believe that God has changed his course. But I, the Lord, do not change, he tells them. In fact, neither have they. They haven't changed, just like God hasn't changed. And that's their problem. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. The people are in sin, yet they believe that their suffering is God's fault, and this is the way that sinners always work. I don't just mean the sinners out there, you know, the sinners we label as sinners, the sinners we can point at as the uh, the chief examples, the visual aids of the idea, if you will. I mean you and me, sinners in here. This is how we work. We love to find somebody else to blame for the suffering that comes about because of our sin. Some of our sin has natural consequences. Some of our sins have covenantal implications. And when we willfully choose to walk in our own wisdom, rather than according to God's word, our foolishness often catches up with us. I know the pushback on the other side, and it's true. There's a a danger of being overly simplistic with these things. Not all of our suffering is a direct result of some unconfessed sin. right? And, And if you are in Christ... All of your afflictions come from the loving hand of your father. Sometimes he gives us affliction to chastise us. As children, that he's disciplining and and pointing in the right direction. Sometimes he gives us affliction simply to fortify our faith. Because so we're not meant to live looking for, for some hidden code, some hidden connection between an unconfessed sin and the difficulty you're dealing with right now. That's true. Nevertheless, when we sin and we suffer for it, we love to find somebody else to blame. It's the way sinners work. It's the way I work. And so when I'm lying there in a huff with my back turned to my wife, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of all the reasons that I'm justified in my huffiness. I am in the right. This is not my fault, certainly. When I am in a disagreement with someone else, I always manage to find believable reasons for why I did what I did. And I always manage to judge the other person far more harshly than I would ever want somebody to judge me. And I bet you do the same thing. It's bad enough when we do this with other people. Far worse when we think those thoughts of God. I am justified and the Lord, he is acting in an unrighteous way. He's treating me in a way that he ought not to. And this is what Israel was doing. Their situation couldn't possibly have had anything to do with their own sin, right? It couldn't possibly have been their fault. How can we return when we've never gone away? It must be that God is against us. It must be that he's the one who's changed. But he hasn't. He never does. And they would know that if they simply remembered what God told them at the very beginning. Remember that before the Lord brought them into this land that they were now possessing, this land of promise, this was also the land of covenant. This is the land of blessing and curses. The land they were in came with terms. If the people would walk in God's ways, the Lord vowed to prosper them, to protect them. If they would follow him, he promised, pledged to to make those promises that he gave to Abraham come true, that he would bless them and make them a blessing. But if they would not follow him, Leviticus chapter 26, these are the original terms. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 to 17 if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statues and break my covenant, then I will set my face against you. So what were the people experiencing? Was it the God who changes, or were they experiencing the God who is constant? They've turned aside from God's statutes, and the Lord has turned his face against him. That was always part of the original deal. Repentance was always part of the original deal as well. This offer that the Lord makes, that if they turn, he will turn. The same unchanging God uh, gives this original agreement, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 30 to 31. He says, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. It's interesting, he says that you will return, and then he gives the reason that they will return. How would you complete that passage? What would you give as the reason that they will return? You'll come to your senses. You'll figure out where you were going wrong. You will finally realize that what you need to do is to follow me. No, God says, in the latter days, when these things come upon you, you will turn. Here's the reason, verse 31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you, or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Even now, in Malachi, as God is speaking to them, it is proof that God has not forgotten his people. It's proof that he has not changed course. Brothers and sisters, what is the hope any time God's people are suffering? It is the unchangeable goodness Of the Lord. Our hope is that the God of grace still calls us to repentance. Our hope is God's plan laid down before the foundations of the earth were laid that God will make sinners ready and willing and able to turn to Him. And when we turn to Him in repentance, He turns to us in mercy. It's true, of course, we don't live physically in the Promised Land. We need to to apply this in a little different way. The the blessings and the curses of the Old Testament don't apply to us in the same way that they applied in Malachi's day. Yet with all that is different, time and place and people and language, all that's different between then and now, what we learn from this passage is that our God does not change. When he makes a covenant promise, he sticks by his word. So 1 John chapter, chapter 1 tells us That when we confess our sins, he is faithful. You know what faithful means? It means constant. It means changeless. It means that our God declares his willingness to forgive. It means that when we come in repentance, he responds in mercy. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness calls us to repentance. It means that we have to stop looking for somebody else to blame. It means we have to be willing to see our sin as God sees our sin. It means that we have to be willing to make an about face. Because when the Lord calls us to repentance, he's calling us to turn. And when his people turn, the Lord gives a promise of abundance. Our second point promise of abundance. Now this is, is closely connected with what we have just seen because God's calling his people to repentance, but he's doing that in the context of the covenant that he made at the beginning. And that means that we should expect that repentance will show up in visible, tangible covenant terms. This is one of the ways that we sometimes get repentance wrong now. We live in a world that is increasingly and abundantly defined and evaluated in psychological terms what you feel is real what do you feel about yourself what do you think and feel about the world around you that's your reality live in that reality and so if we buy into that model we can sometimes downgrade repentance and say well as long as you feel sorry that's repentance right So the young woman goes to the store to try on a few shirts, and the one that she likes, rather than buying it, she simply stuffs it in her purse and walks out with it. But a few days later, she feels terrible about what she did. That's repentance, isn't it? It's the thought that counts. Or does repentance show up? Does repentance make restitution? Is repentance, as Sinclair Ferguson says, worked out in obedience to the specific commandments of God? So when God's people asked him, how should we return? It gives them a concrete example. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Remember, God is dealing with his original agreement. You see the mention of a curse in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. The the article there should be definite. You are cursed with the curse, the covenant curse. He hasn't changed his terms. You can find the calculation in several places in the Mosaic Law. The Lord demands a full 10%. All the produce of the land ought to be given to support the work of the temple and the priests and the Levites. Every third year, it was gathered in towns not only to feed the Levites, but also the poor of the land. 10%, the Lord says, of the grain and the oil and the flocks and the herds. In fact, our English word, tithe, simply means a tenth. One-tenth. That was the agreement. 10% belongs to the Lord. Actually, all of it belongs to the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to him. His people are merely stewards of the gifts that he gives. But in the land, he demanded a tenth. You know, one pastor, though, said that it's the kind of thing, this tithing, it's the kind of thing that was easy to skimp. Exceedingly hard to prove if you were skimping. Who would know? Unless they had access to your books, unless they counted the grain and the sheep in your uh, your pastures, how would they know? Who's going to check the accounting? And so, as a result, the people of God in Malachi's day are drifting from the Lord in measurable ways. They're drifting from the Lord by bushels and gallons, by sacrifices unoffered. And real repentance, according to God's covenant, is also going to be measurable. It's going to be costly. Rosaria Butterfield's story is is well known by now, probably especially to our congregation. She was converted in the middle of her life. And when the Lord called her, she was in a long-term lesbian relationship. When the Lord called her, she held a tenured post as a professor of queer studies at a major university. And she describes her conversion as a train wreck, she says. Because when God called her, it meant leaving her job and leaving her relationship and leaving her community and leaving her home. And when she tells her story, she goes around and shares her testimony. She relates the fact that lots of people are often amazed at what the Lord has called her to and out of. And they will often say things like, I can't believe how much it cost for you to follow Jesus. Rosaria says that her answer is always... How much did it cost you to follow Jesus? Repentance is costly. It's real. It shows up. It's the idea here in Malachi. The people have been ignoring God's commands by laying out treasures for themselves. No doubt they thought that that was the only way ahead. Things were tough. There wasn't much to go around. And maybe God couldn't be trusted. Maybe he wouldn't provide for their needs if they gave him the tenth that he required. So they held back what belonged to the Lord. They robbed God, he says. The whole nation was involved. And in order to return to the Lord, the whole nation would have to bear this costly repentance. But the Lord says repentance will also bring a blessing. There's a promise of abundance. Verse 10. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is God's graciousness. You know that elsewhere in his word, he warns us, he tells us, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Not to approach him in unbelief, not to hold up uh, our skeptical hoops and demand that God jump through those before we put our hope in Him. Elsewhere, God tells us not to test Him. And when He prohibits testing, He's prohibiting our cynicism, our stubborn, donkey like doubts that we will not be turned. But this is different. This is an invitation to come and to have our weak faith strengthened. This is the same idea that we find in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you believe that maybe he's changed his terms? Do you believe that maybe he's not willing to keep his promises? God is saying, try me. Test me. Prove my unchanging faithfulness, he's saying. The Lord has promised abundance for obedience. He's promised prosperity for covenant faithfulness. And he's saying that he's going to keep his promises. And so most likely there was a drought. But the Lord is able to open, he says, the windows of heaven. The same windows of heaven that at the first brought the floods upon the earth. The Lord is not restricted in what he can do and what he can send. See if I will not open the windows, he says. And it seems there is a pestilence, but the Lord says that he will rebuke the destroyer. There are no pesticides in these days. There may be some things that you can scatter to keep bugs away. But the Lord says he will rebuke those bugs, those, uh, those worms that gnaw at their produce. There was a blight, but now the Lord says, The vine in the field shall not fail to bear. It is a reversal of fortunes. A reversal of fortunes so great that everybody around them will see it. Do you remember that in the first chapter, God said that the land... The land of Esau is going to be a land of wickedness. Now he says, You will be a land of delight. Everybody will know it. Everybody will see what the Lord has done for you. And in their sin, they're merely limping along. They're living from hand to mouth. But in repentance, there's going to be plenty, he says. More than they could need, more than they could contain, more than they could count. And through obedience, the Lord is going to move his people from affliction to an abundance they couldn't imagine. Now, you know, as well as I do, the way that Old Testament promises like this get abused, don't you? We know about those prosperity preachers. I want to tell you that for the suggested donation of $25 a month, the ministry that has their name on it, they will guarantee that God will fill your pockets, and God will heal your pets, and God will bless your socks right off. And that is not what this is about. Right? The Lord is speaking to his particular people. He's speaking to them in a particular place. He's speaking to them under a particular administration of God's covenant of grace. for national Israel. God's promises, his goodness, was manifested in agricultural abundance. And we will misuse this passage if we try to universalize it. If we try to make this a business plan for expanding your financial portfolio, well, you're giving your tithe, right? As long as you give your tithe, God will take care of you, and in fact, you'll have more than you could ever imagine. This is not a business plan. But we also misuse this text if we stick it so far in the past that there's no abundance left over for God's people now. The lesson to be learned is that God does not change. God upholds his covenant. God gives generously to all and he gives without reproach. It's true that we might have to rethink uh, what God's abundance looks like. It, it means that we might need to re-examine what it means to turn to the Lord in costly repentance. But you know, it's funny. When we, when we read a text like Malachi chapter 3, one of the theological discussions we like to have with one another is whether the Old Testament tithe still applies to New Testament believers. That's the direction we tend to go when we deal with texts like this. There are some people on one hand who say absolutely not. It's not repeated in the New Testament. There are other people who say absolutely it does. It carries on because it's not abrogated in the New Testament. I think, by the way, a pretty good case can be made for the latter rather than the former. But no matter which side we fall on that issue, the, the reality is that what we do is that we normally fix our sight on where God sets the minimum requirement. Does 10% still apply? What if times are hard? Can I, can I bump that down to eight? Five, can I, can I get five? Anybody, five, five, five. That's what we do with this sort of thing. How low can we go? What does God really require? You now, the New Testament does not directly answer this question. But maybe because the question is aimed too low. So instead of discussing percents and fractions, Jesus reminds us that God's demand on us and on our possessions is absolute. If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said that whoever would keep his life would lose it. Jesus said, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And it's probably safe to assume that he intended all of our finances as well. This is what Paul says. First Corinthians chapter six. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. God owns the cattle On a thousand hills, he owns the capital in a thousand accounts. And through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, he owns the saints in a thousand churches. So maybe instead of asking what the minimum is that God requires, we ought to answer Rosaria Butterfield's question. What did following Jesus cost you? If we're honest, the answer is everything. When the Lord calls his people to follow Christ, he demands that we keep nothing back, that we hold nothing in reserve. All of our resources, all of our time, all of our relationships, all of our skills, all of our ambitions, all of our desires, all of it is meant to be stewarded in a way that brings honor and glory to God rather than merely comfort to ourselves. All of it belongs to him. Because we have been bought with a price. Hold on then, pastor, because you said the second point was about a promise of abundance. And where is the abundance? If all of it belongs to God, what do we get in return? Well, the Lord hasn't changed, has he? Doesn't he still make promises to you of his abundance? Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What has your repentance cost you? What does God demand when we follow Christ? What does he call us to steward for his sake and for the gospel's sake? He demands everything, but what does he give in return? Everything. A hundredfold, he says, with persecutions hardships, afflictions that come from God's loving, lovingly fatherly hand. Those things that he used to to discipline us, to fortify us, to build us up that we would know that he is good, that he is not changed, that his purposes never fail, that we're still a part of his family. So he treats us like children who need to be disciplined and gives it to us. The abundance of his goodness, his, his unchanging faithfulness to his covenant promises. He says, when you confess your sins, I'll be faithful, I'll cleanse you, I'll forgive you, I'll give you righteousness in Christ. There's a call to repentance in this passage, but what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ is an abundance that we could not contain or count, couldn't even begin to imagine. And the Lord says, when you come to me, I will give him to you. Let's join together in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the abundance that we find in Christ. Even as we are about to come to this table, which by earthly estimation is set with very small elements, pieces and bites, yet it speaks to us of the great abundance of Jesus Christ. His love poured out for us, his mercy given to us. Lord, you held nothing back when you sent him into the world to be the sacrifice for sinners. So, O Lord, we pray that you would enable us to hold nothing back as we follow you. But, Lord, we pray also that we would find the goodness of Christ our Savior, the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Draw us in faith to yourself, we ask, in his name.